This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is America as Overlord, From World War II to the Vietnam War, by Hal Draper. From 1932 until his death in 1990, Hal Draper was a prolific Marxist writer and socialist organizer who successfully combined rigorous research and passionate outrage to assess his political era. In this still indispensable collection of essays written in the 1950s and 60s, Draper grapples with the role of the United States in the world, situating post-war American imperialism in a global picture of capitalist competition and expansion. The essays in this volume include Draper's discussions of U.S. involvement in Guatemala, Guam, Samoa, Cuba, Vietnam, and elsewhere, as well as his more general socialist guide to national liberation movements. America as Overlord by Hal Draper, out now from Haymarket Books and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is my interview with Robin Kelly on his classic book, Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, first published in 2002 and then republished last year in a new edition. I don't have much to say by way of introduction because this interview, like the book, contains multitudes. Plus, we have a bit of an introductory conversation at the top of the interview. It's really good. If you're a fan of The Dig and you don't yet support us at patreon.com slash the dig, and you can indeed afford to support us, I encourage you to please do so now. We could raise a lot of funding if we paywalled half our episodes. We do not do that because we truly want to maximize the number of people possible listening to every single episode, regardless of your ability to pay. But we do indeed need your contributions. We're about to invest a ton of money into an ongoing series of more creative, sound-rich narrative segments telling stories about everything all over the place. If, if you listen to our 2020 antibody series, that's what we're going to be up to, something like that. And paying talented audio producers to do this work is expensive, but it is worth it. Please contribute what feels right. What's more... We also have things to send you as thank you gifts. A contribution of $10 or more a month, we will send you a book or books in the mail, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug. Our swag is pretty good. Please contribute now if you haven't, but can afford to do so. It, it means a ton to me, and it is quite literally what makes this podcast possible. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Also, a contribution of any amount, even $1 a month, gets you our weekly newsletter sent to your email inbox. It is, in fact, a very good newsletter. If you want to check it out, they are available along with our vast archives at thedigradio.com. But it's better to get it delivered to your email inbox. Okay, here's Robin D.G. Kelly, a professor of history at UCLA and the author of numerous articles and books, including Hammer and Ho. Alabama Communists During the Great Depression, which I discussed with Kelly a while back, 
and the book we're discussing today, Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination. Robin Kelly, welcome back to The Dig. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be with you as always. I want to set some context for when when you first wrote this book, and then more recently, it's 20th anniversary republication, and then all that time that elapsed in between from the final years of the 1990s when Clintonism reigned triumphant and, and the concept of the prison industrial complex and prison industrial complex abolitionism was really being developed, and then also to the immediate period after 9-11, all the way over those two decades through the summer of 2020's rebellions and protest, which certainly sparked renewed interest in your book. And then today, two years after that, which can feel, and I know you've contested me making this argument before, it can feel like a moment of reaction and demobilization. So my question to start is, what what was that first moment like two decades ago, and how does it differ from these recent years around its republication? And and then what through lines and ruptures can help us make sense of what has brought us from, from that moment to this one? To go back, it was before 9-11, really, when the idea for Freedom Dreams kind of came in, into fruition. And a lot of it centered around a couple of things. One, police violence. The Amadou Diallo case uh, was important. He had been killed by police in New York. A lot of us were protesting the fact that the cops had been exonerated. There was that. And in fact, the killing of Amadou Diallo was on the tails of a whole range of police killings. In other words, there's not a season where there's not police killings uh, or beatings. Abner Luima, for example, uh, was a big thing in New York. So that's one of the contexts. Uh, The other context that was really important for the 90s is that a lot of the radical movements that emerged in that decade were arrayed against the Clinton administration. And one of the things that we're always remind, I'm always reminded of, whether we're talking about Obama, Clinton, you know, the Johnson administration, is that liberal administrations are often the worst in terms of creating the conditions for what becomes the neoliberal agenda. You know, you think about what it meant for Clinton to ultimately back welfare reform you know, stripping poor people of welfare, moving toward workfare, the, some of the housing policies, the, the mass incarceration expansion under Clinton, the fact that he ends up signing NAFTA, even if he doesn't take responsibility for it, it became part of his whole uh, stick. So we are coming out of a situation where there's a lot of pessimism, especially among my students, because they're fighting against, you know, liberal regime, and they don't see how they can win, uh, and they don't see uh, social movements in the way that they imagine them to be. You know, they had a kind of romantic sense of, you know, the days of the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army, SDS, and people in the streets fighting the police. And, you know, it was very romanticized, though, in fact, there's a lot to learn from those movements. I was working with these students trying to reveal to them that there's a long, long, long history 
of struggles that don't always look like they succeed because we're trapped in this idea of what success looks like. And sometimes success is not even about winning campaigns. It's just looking cool doing it, whether you're armed in the streets, whether you have a kind of spectacle. And that's not what movements look like in in real life. So that was largely the context for that period. And I wrote the book really for undergraduates, you know, who they were looking for models of revolutionary activity. And I was saying, they don't always look like what you think they look like. And more importantly, they don't always win if we think of the very narrow definition of what winning is, and that is achieving a certain objective. But what but the most important thing is that whatever their agenda is, that agenda, their vision, is not something that's made ahead of time, but it's made in struggle. It's made in movement. Um, and if anything, the basic lesson of Freedom Dreams is not that you know people need to go to sleep and dream and wake up in the morning with a new idea, but that what we think of as future thinking dreams of possibility, of dreams of change, the world that's possible, comes out of struggle. It doesn't come out of think tanks. doesn't come out of taking mushrooms. It really does come out of movements and relationships within those movements. And they don't always produce the best ideas, but the ideas that are always in motion. So why did I come up with this new edition? Part of it was, you know, I'm, I, was, I felt compelled to take stock of where we are today in the wake of the 2020 protests. I mean, I've been thinking about a new edition for a while, but especially after 2020, I was thinking about the long history of anti-state violence and what we witnessed. Because it wasn't the 2020 protests were like a culmination of lots of things. It was a culmination of the Occupy movement. It it had its roots in the anti-police protests erupting in, you know, after Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown, the 2013, 2014, 2015 season. The other context, of course, is, you know, we're facing a resurgent fascism. I say resurgent because fascism has a long history in the United States. Uh, and what became the capital insurrection is a culmination of that resurgent fascism in response to these radical insurgencies, the radical insurgencies that go back to when the book began and the insurgencies that emerged throughout the the 21st century, you know, every, basically every decade, Occupy being one of them, right? Uh, which sometimes we forget. One thing I didn't mention, though, I think it's important, is the other context, which is 9-11. You know, 9-11 led to a kind of disruption in the writing of the book because we've already been experiencing a kind of um, suppression of movements, not just civil liberties, but actual movements. And with the Bush administration, the possibility of greater repression emerges with the creation of the Homeland Security Matrix, which precedes, by the way, 9-11. They talk about Homeland Security before 9-11 took place that spring. And then with 9-11, it felt like a kind of sea change. There was this kind of false patriotism that erupted. Uh, there was a sense that that radical movements were kind of derailed and you really couldn't say anything critical of the United States. A kind of blanket emerged over, and especially over liberals. Not to say I have 
ever trust liberals. I don't, because uh, that's part of the problem. But it became more and more difficult, you know, after 9-11. And at the same time, uh, a, a vibrant anti-war movement did emerge uh, after the invasion of Afghanistan, especially the invasion of Iraq, where, you know, that anti-war movement was faced with what becomes an expansion of the national security state. All these cases where people are being prosecuted under the Espionage Act was made possible, you know, or promoted following 9-11. And so I'm writing this book about radical movements at a time, and it comes out at a time when uh, radical movements, whatever form they take, are under not just greater suspicion and repression, but the whole uh, apparatus of sort of new technology is geared toward surveillance and surveillance and attacks on whistleblowers. And again, all this stuff I'm talking about is not necessarily reduced or limited to the Bush administration. It continues under Obama and it continues as we speak. So that context is important because when I talk about the resurgence of fascism, it's a mistake to think about fascism merely as a group of military personnel, ex-cops or active duty cops trying to overthrow no Congress or take over the, the Capitol. It's not, they're not a fringe group. The state itself is moving in this direction. You know, even if the t- state is being targeted by targeted uh, other fascists in the streets, so that's that context is very important because uh, when we take the long view, what we see is movements emerging under almost impossible circumstances in the past, and that's something I do talk about in the introduction. Let's start where where you start your autobiographical reflections with with black nationalism. And with how you encounter, and let's start with how you encountered it. You write, "Quote: I came to black nationalism filled with idealistic dreams of a communal society free of all oppressions, a world where we owned the land and shared the wealth, and white folks were out of sight and out of mind. It was what I imagined pre-colonial Africa to be. Sure, I was naive, still in my teens, but my imaginary portrait, derived from the writings of Sheikh Anta Diop, Chancellor Williams, Julius Nyerere." Kwame Nkrumah and Kwame Ture and others gave me a sense of hope and possibility of what a post-colonial Africa could look like. How did you first have this encounter with Black nationalism, and what what role did its internationalism, particularly its relationship to Africa, present and past, play play in how you experienced it as a politics? Sure, I mean my political um, I wouldn't say awakening, but certainly. My first encounter with politics was as a child growing up in Harlem. And no one living on 157th between Broadway and Amsterdam or anywhere in St. Nicholas, anywhere, would actually be able to avoid soapbox speakers, Black nationalist organizations. You know, you go to Liberation Bookstore, for example, on what's now Malcolm X Boulevard, uh, which was then Lennox. You know, you go to uh, 125th Street. I mean, it was everywhere. And so that's how I understood politics. That is the struggles of Black people for freedom and self-determination. And so by the time I get to college in California, uh, I jumped into Black studies. Uh, the, 
the authors you mentioned, people like Sheikh Anta Diop and Chancellor Williams and others, these are the authors I read. They didn't all agree, but what they did agree upon fundamentally was that African people, no matter where they are, are connected somehow and have a right to self-determination. But what self-determination meant in the 1970s, like when I was, I came up in the 60s and by the 70s, I'm, you know, in high school, you know, late 70s in high school and eventually go to college in the early 80s. A lot of the romantic ideas of what pre-colonial Africa was, with Julius Nyerere as, uh, as uh, with Julius Nyerere as um, the uh, president of Tanzania, tried to implement in terms of African socialism, was this assumption that communalism was the default situation, it's the natural culture of African peoples. This is a negritude as well, and I grew up with that. But then I also encountered other thinkers um, and other movements like the All African People's Revolutionary Party, which I was part of a study group in 1980-81. I encountered uh, the New African Movement or what, was, what emerged as a provisional government for the Republic of New Africa. And these were the groups that were saying, well, wait a second. Yes, we have certain kinds of traditions that have been that colonialism tried to destroy, but at the same time, we've had class distinctions and forms of power. Some of these forms of power existed before colonialism, but they really took off during and after uh, colonialism. So, you know, I'm a, of the generation where we read Franz Fanon, we read Wretched the Earth first. <laughs> Nowadays, no one wants to read that. They want to read Black Skin, White Mass, which is a very important book, but you know, to read Wretched the Earth and to read about the critique of the national bourgeoisie, the, the African national bourgeoisie, right? Uh, to read Walter Rodney, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, and to understand the role that elites play uh, in the perpetuation of, of a kind of neocolonial uh, domination. To read Chinwezu, The West and the Rest of Us, you know. And these are the texts that were really foundational to be able to hold on to a kind of Black nationalism, which was really appealing, without falling into the trap of seeing the roots of of exploitation and inequality strictly in terms of racial difference. We saw it in terms of class difference, in terms of economic exploitation, in terms of the way capitalism unfolded. You know, and so that those are the politics that were important to me. And look, I'm not alone in saying that uh, we were surrounded by in the 60s, 70s, and 80s by a lot of thinkers who believed that nationalism and Marxism were not antithetical; they could come together. And and you know, whatever limit we could talk about limitations today, but in those days there was a sense that the nation state in the right hands could be a good thing. That the state is uh, a kind of neutral structure that is a reflection of class power. You know, it is an instrument of a class. And so imagine the 1970s when you have this idea of a new international economic order and all the nations of the global south would come together, get technology transfers, they would 
use the state for the purposes of creating social democracy. They would ensure minimum wage. They would pass legislation that would stop pollution and and capital, you know, um, the invasion of, of foreign capital and and the expatriation of of profits, all that stuff. That was the dream, the great welfare state. And by the way, side note, the very first article I ever published and the very first paper I ever gave as a 19-year-old sophomore at Long Beach State was a critique of the new international economic order. (laughs) (laughs) And it was funny because I was at this conference where they brought like actual UN dignitaries uh, who were in some ways doing economic policy, Nigeria, Ghana, they were all in the room. And here's this kid. And I look, I look like I was 15. They're like, and, I have a critique. Right. And I, I was critiquing everyone in the room. And they were so pissed because I was saying that, you know, yes, in theory, a new international economic order is a good thing, but not as long as the, I was calling the petty bourgeoisie. As long as the petty bourgeoisie is in power, it will be a disaster and maintain capitalism. We need socialism. And then, you know, I don't think anyone applauded for me, but <laughs> it was my first paper. <laughs> but that that was what the world looked like politically. And so when I wrote that introduction, I wasn't exactly saying that it was a terrible thing, but that it was a catalyst, that those readings, that moment was a catalyst for a critique of capital. Uh, as opposed to the way we see it as simply kind of reactionary cultural nationalism that has to be destroyed and left behind. Um, There's some elements of truth still in that critique. You write, quote, We were particularly obsessed with the large-scale civilizations along the Nile, Egypt, Ethiopia, Nubia, as were generations of Afrocentric scholars before us. We dreamed the ancient world as a place of freedom, a picture to imagine what we desired and what was possible. And then you write from early on, quote, Ethiopianism spread throughout the black world, from the Americas to Africa, calling for the redemption of Africa by any means necessary. One of the earliest published examples of this doctrine was Robert Alexander Young's Ethiopian Manifesto, issued in defense of the black man's rights in the scale of universal freedom published in 1829, which predicted the coming of a new Hannibal who would lead a violent uprising to liberate the race. And Ethiopia, of course, continued to inspire and mobilize black radicals in in 1896 when when Menelik II defeated invading Italian forces, and then again in 1935 when Italy's invasion helped forge a remarkable global black public, one that in many ways, really anticipated third worldism that came together to to speak out and protest the invasion. Why did Ethiopia in particular for so long play such a critical role in the black American and and also black international political imagination? Okay, so there are two elements to the question. The first has to do with this romantic identification with large-scale civilizations. And I would separate, I would separate Ethiopia out of that. I would put, uh, you know, make this about Egypt. And that was one of the critiques of Afrocentrism. That is to say that what we, what, what I came up with, you know, part, part of, part of the work of proving that Black people are not inferior is to prove that 
that African people did exactly what Europeans did before them, you know, which is a kind of lame argument, but it has power. Because if you say that colonialism and slavery were justified because these were people who were primitives living in jungles, all this made up stuff, uh, as opposed to being able to, um, to prove that the first university was like Timbuktu or to prove that the pyramids were these amazing gargantuan structures, no matter if it was built by slave labor or that they were also expressions of class rule. That goes out the window if you're trying to do a kind of competition between what you identify as civilization. So part of, the, part of that critique is to say, why use European standards to evaluate Africa? Uh, and so that was my that was my break with Afrocentrism because you know my my initial plan was to study ancient Egypt. I was gonna you know the language was also an issue, but <laughs> but that was my initial plan. So that so breaking with that is is a is a different kind of matter and something that we're still struggling with. Ethiopia though had a different kind of symbolic value, even greater than Egypt. E- Egypt Egypt required a lot of revision to be able to make Egypt a great land of Black people, because you had to deal with the religious tradition of Old Testament ideas, uh, Old Testament narratives that Egypt was the oppressor, the Egyptians were the oppressors, and the Jews were the oppressed. And I think, you know, we come out of a tradition of Old Testament thinking where uh, Black people as enslaved people and even as free people identified with the oppressed Jews in Egypt. Only some, there's only some sort of exceptions where like a, a Marcus Garvey or a Sun Ra would say, you know, no, we're, we're with the pharaohs. You know? <laughs> but we, we don't come out, of, we don't identify with the pharaohs. Ethiopia, though, biblically, stands in for all of Africa. There was no place, um, Ab- Abyssinia becomes a place but in many ways, it was a, not just a metaphor, but really, Ethiopia was all of Africa. So when, um, or at least all of East Africa, but really all of Africa. So when uh, Psalm 68 of the Bible talks about the princes will come out of Egypt, and then in the case of Ethiopia, the Ethiopia shall stretch forth their hands and basically create the possibility for redemption or liberation for Black people. That's how Psalm 68 was was read. So the idea of a Black Hannibal had no particular geographic reference, because Hannibal, of course, is North Africa. Um, it didn't matter. What mattered is the biblical injunction and the, the fact that the Bible is both a record of history and understood to be um, a predictor of the future. Simultaneously, I mean that's the that's what the Bible does, uh, and so the predictor is this idea that Ethiopia shall stretch forth their arms. Now, that's Ethiopianism initially had very little little to do with Ethiopia itself, except for the fact that Ethiopia was, or the region we know today as Ethiopia, uh, the region of the Amharic-speaking people and all the other um, groups in the Horn of Africa, was. Ethiopia was this mythological place in the minds of European Christians who believed that there was a uh, a, a white, essentially white or non-black uh, religious leader and ruler named Prester John 
And they're all like all these travelers and are trying to find Prester John. And if you find Prester John, you find the civilized, you know, Christian uh, Africans who are not African, right? That was kind of the mythology. But what it did do was it created an exception, even in the minds of U- European Christians, because Ethiopia, which wasn't a nation yet, had adopted Christianity before any other part of Africa. In fact, uh, Coptic Christianity in, in Ethiopia predates much of Europe. And that, and Christianity alone is proof in the minds of, of European supremacists and Christian supremacists that Ethiopia is more civilized. Now, that story is shaping the narrative around Ethiopianism. So on the one hand, you've got Europeans claiming Ethiopia as a civilized uh, place. You've got Africans in North America and throughout the Western Hemisphere, reading the Bible, saying Ethiopia is a land of redemption, a possible revolution, and that they're not trying to build alliances with Europe. They're trying to overthrow an oppressive system in which the pharaoh is on the other side of the Mediterranean, right? So that's where Ethiopianism uh, as a, a kind of religious movement meets Ethiopian history. And you mentioned 1896, the Battle of Adwa, which is a very important symbol in Black American consciousness, because this is before the Japanese defeated Russia in 1905, or 1904, I think it is. This is before that. So here you got allegedly an African country defeating Italy. What's not always talked about is in the romance of that, is that Menelik mobilized all these princes, but also gave up in a negotiation parts of the Horn of Africa, like, you know, Eritrea and places like that, as a way of creating a settlement with the Italians. The other thing is that Italy itself wasn't, was, had just been unified as a nation, whatever that means. And so what the Italians won was colonies. They, they got colonies in the Horn of Africa, as well as Libya and places like that. So it wasn't a complete defeat. What does this mean for Black Americans? Well, musical theater, like in, a- in Abyssinia, for example, um, uh, and other kinds of novels and, and writings and performances all celebrated the victory against uh, the Italians. And it just hyped up the, the importance of Ethiopia as one of two regions that were, at least in theory, not colonized by Europeans. The other being Liberia, but of course, we know Liberia was a colony of the United States. And what it does is it creates a myth that Ethiopia somehow resisted colonialism when in fact all around it was uh, a negotiation with colonists, not just the Italians, but the British. And it was a nation state that continued to practice slavery at least until 1931. And that's something people didn't want to talk about. And so because I write about Black leftists, you know, you you find people like George Padmore, uh, the great, who was born as Malcolm Nurse from Trinidad, great communist who eventually broke with the party uh, and became a critic, well, Pan-Africanism or communism. He, you know, George Padmore was criticizing Ethiopia in 1930, you know, saying, you know, like, whatever we think about it, they still have slavery, 
we have to defend Ethiopia's right to self-determination, but we've got to fight class forces for you know, what becomes Haile Selassie and, and his class. And so that was a kind of realistic approach to understanding actual Ethiopia versus symbolic Ethiopia. And finally, in between all that is the fact that, as you mentioned, Ethiopia is invaded again in 1935. And once again, the beginnings of world war, you know, as Du Bois tells us, always begins with colonial slaughter. And so Second World War begins, you know, with the invasion of, of uh, Ethiopia by Italy. And the Black world mobilizes to defend both uh, the physical land and culture of Ethiopia, as well as the sacred and symbolic land of Ethiopia, biblically speaking. The idea of going back to Africa was one part of a a larger emigrationist politics that has been pervasive in a lot of different ways that you describe throughout the long arc of Black American history. You write, quote, Few scholars or activists today take proposals to leave America and return to Africa or some other homeland seriously. Back to Africa proposals, in principle, are almost universally dismissed as escapist or associated with essentialist, romantic ideas about black cultural unity. Critics dwell on the impracticality of such schemes, or they point to sharp cultural and class differences that keep the black world divided. They are not wrong to do so, but any wholesale dismissal of the desire to leave this place and find a new home misses what these movements might tell us about how black people have imagined real freedom. What, what is it then that, that emigrationist politics and imaginings tell us about how black people have imagined freedom? And to me, what, one thing that really comes to mind as, as, a, as a case study for how to unpack this is... In terms of 19th century emigrationism, we see emigrationist sentiment rising at moments when black people grow most pessimistic about the possibilities, the plausibility of fighting for some place within the United States. But on the other hand, Tulani Davis, who who I interviewed recently, talked about how Exoduster organizing in the South, organizing to migrate west to Kansas, a precursor of sorts to the 20th century's Great Migration, that this was also a key marker of organization building in and for the South. So let's go back to a couple of things. One, when I wrote that uh, back in the late 90s, some things I didn't anticipate. For example, the exodus of, of the emigration of the Black elite to South Africa <laughs> to uphold what is a kind of a post-apartheid uh, uh, capitalist hegemony. And that's not the kind of immigration I'm talking about. So I just want to be clear about that. But there are two things that are really important in this. And this is also a point that Tulani makes and a point that Du Bois makes in Black Reconstruction. One is land, because part of immigration is about being able to access land, uh, wherever that land might be. It's not like you're moving from one ownership of land to another. You're actually trying to, to establish some land for yourself. But the second thing, of course, is is freedom from a government that at one point you might have believed was designed to protect you and your people, but actually turns out not to be the case. And so self-determination in terms of land and governmental authority 
is part of what made emigration, or at least the dream of emigration, um, attractive. And again, what I was trying to get at wasn't like, is it effective? Should we do this? Should this be the next strategy? No, it's about trying to tap desire and what people envision to be, what uh, sort of envision what freedom might look and feel like. And it was never about being able to integrate into mainstream, you know, white liberal society or live in suburbs with white people. And that's freedom. Uh, because part of it is even people believe that what you end up getting is not freedom. So those two elements are very, very important. And when you think about what it means to have land, it opens up a whole different set of conversations about once you are able to establish a free space, land, autonomy, uh, something like self-determination, a security, what does it look like in terms of organizing society? So again, we have a lot of scholarship now thinking about marinage and what maroon societies as a kind of precursor or an example of that kind of freedom. But what we find, of course, is that sometimes the most the most revolutionary intentions can turn into new forms of hierarchy. So maroon societies are often ones that uh, are, that have hierarchy, that have rulers, that have um, that that make deals with colonial states to, or or slave plantation societies to give back runaways in, in exchange for the security with male domination, for example. Uh, where um, women and slaves, even within maroon societies, become a means of exchange and protection, right? They're not like always revolutionary societies. Or we have all these amazing black towns that some of them are based on a kind of cooperative economics. Others do result in class distinctions where there are people who own more land than others, you know? And where other people work for those who own land. So part of even beginning the book with this idea of land as freedom and emigration and getting out of Dodge as a strategy for liberation is just an opening for other chapters later to say, okay, once you get the land, once you get the autonomy, once you get self-determination, what does that mean in terms of social relations within that community, within that group? Um, and that, to me, is is really uh, the crucial question. And Tulani is absolutely right to talk about what it means to create institutions that could link people across states, across state lines, that could facilitate political participation, that could facilitate economic power. And what does what these what do these things look like? And at what point do those institutions uh, end up? being riven by class or gender divisions or distinctions. Yeah, and and one thing I found really powerful about her argument around the Exodusster movement is that these this organizing about leaving the south, about getting the hell out of the south for for a lot of very obvious reasons does lead to some people leaving the south, of course, but also leads to institution building for the larger number of people who, in that period before the Great Migration, stay in the South. Exactly. 
I agree with that. I mean, no, it's a very important observation because I think we always have to think about the South in historical context because, you know, and I've been making this case for long because the South gets such a bad rap as somehow being a backwater of conservatism and all that stuff. And it's actually the other way around. I mean, Cedric Robinson taught me that it's precisely because the South was the place that experienced the closest to a true revolution in the United States that you have reaction, that conservatives, the conservative anti-labor racist structures were a response to the possibility, not just of Black self-determination and Black economic power and Black autonomy, but interracial power, interracial struggle. And I think that those things are not mutually exclusive that many of the people who were involved with the Greenback Labor Party, uh, later involved with populism, uh, involved with the readjuster parties, were also exodusters, you know, who tried to build these alliances, led these labor struggles, fought at, on all, in, in all terrains. But at the same time, it made sense for them to try to find some solace and power uh, away. And when I say away, and this is, again, to go back to Tulani's work, there was no such thing as a truly isolated Black town or Black community because they maintained networks and communications across the board. I'll give you a really good example. If you haven't seen the film Till, which is a beautiful, amazing film starring Danielle Deadweiler, who does an amazing performance as Mamie uh, Till Mobley, Mount Bayou, the town of Mount Bayou, which is an all-Black town where Black wealth was accumulated to a certain degree. And yes, there were some class distinctions, but Mount Bayou became the political uh, headquarters to mobilize support for the campaign for justice for Emmett Till. It became the place, the safe space for Black reporters and activists and organizers and maybe uh, Till Mobley herself to go there and find protection and support. It became a center for the civil rights movement in Mississippi. So there's something about these autonomous, semi-autonomous spaces that allow for the continued struggle to get basic justice and civil rights for all Black people wherever they may be. It's not always a withdrawal from society itself, but a deepening pocket of power in order to to transform the nation and the world. No discussion of Black immigrationist politics would be complete without Marcus Garvey, the the founder of the Universal Negro Improvement Association. How did Garvey's movement emerge and then catch such incredible fire among Black people? And what were the ideological and, and theological precepts of a movement that Garvey called Black Zionism? Let's go back. In terms of the first part of the question, where did it come from? How did it emerge? Garvey himself was an amazing uh, journalist and organizer himself. He uh, traveled around Latin America, was in Panama and elsewhere, uh, supporting labor organizing. He ends up in Europe and in conversation with Irish nationalists. And this is an important observation, is that when he unfolded, unfolded this idea of the red, black, and green flag in his initial uh, soapbox speech. He identified 
the green for the Irish Revolution, the red for the Bolshevik Revolution, and the black for the black man's revolution, which later became green for the land, red for the blood, you know. Uh, but the fact that that his nationalism was internationalism from the outset uh, and quite radical is important. At the same time, the same Marcus Garvey was enamored with Booker T. Washington, who, by any stretch of imagination, is not a radical. <laughs> you know? And that's, this is disputed. But what he found in Booker T. Washington was this ability to raise a generation of young people through agriculture, with dignity, respect, and some economic power. Some. And so he wanted to work with Booker T. Washington. When Booker T. dies, he ends up going to New York. Now, the Zionism part is the fourth element. So, of course, you know, he's inspired by the Bolshevik Revolution. Everyone is. Everyone is. I mean, except for the deeply anti-communists. No one ever thought that uh, what was perceived to be a peasant country could overthrow the czar uh, and move rapidly toward what at least on the surface looked like decolonization, socialism, becomes a new economic policy. I mean, we're not going to talk about the Russian Revolution today, but that was a kind of inspiration for what was possible for people who are oppressed to basically win something, to overthrow a government. Uh, the Irish, of course, uh, took great pride in in culture, language, the right to land. It was it was like anti colonialism par excellence, as far as Garvey and others were concerned. Um, but then the other element is Zionism, and Garvey, you know, was inspired by Zionism. I mean, Jamaica had uh, a number of Jewish uh, entrepreneurs who uh, were themselves Jamaican and helped fund. The UNIA. Uh, Garvey actually even toyed with the idea of Judaism becoming the official uh, religion of the Black Nationalist Movement of the UNIA. He quickly moved away from that and developed his own, the African, African Orthodox Church. But his one of his main lieutenants was Rabbi Arnold J. Ford, who converted to uh, Judaism and eventually ends up, and you know from the book, uh, taking a congregation to, of all places, Ethiopia, and settling there and creating a kind of new uh, movement of, of Ethiopian Jews from the United States, who are all Black. Why Zionism? Well, Zionism was attractive because, remember, Zionism wasn't exactly a, a religious movement in the way we think of it. It was a political movement, uh, a movement that was nationalist, based on the idea of the right to land, and that the Jews, um, as a dispersed people, uh, have not only a right, but an obligation to find a homeland. And in those days, Zionism wasn't necessarily always linked to historical Palestine. Zionists, Zionists were like, well, maybe, why not Uganda? You know, yeah, They're maybe. like, what, what's available? <laughs> right. Exactly, exactly. I mean, and that's not to say that Palestine wasn't relevant. It was very relevant, but it was... They were open. But the most important thing about Zionism was this idea of, of land, it, land security that's necessary for an oppressed people to thrive. And it's not an accident that people, even like Elaine Locke in his editing of The New Negro, Elaine Locke was not a friend of Garvey at all. They didn't like each other. But Locke was like, 
you know, Zionism is part of the, is, is like akin to the New Negro movement. So for Garvey, Black Zionism was the Black version of the political movement that we know of as, as Zionism. And the other part of the question is that why did it kind of explode, expand so rapidly? Well, there's so many different reasons. Uh, one has to do with the, the power of print culture. Uh, as uh, Benedict Anderson says, you know, uh, print culture is a really crucial part of developing nationalism. And whether that nationalism is tied to a state or not doesn't matter. It, but if you have a paper like The Negro World as publishing in many different languages and has circulation around the globe, um, then you're going to develop followers. But the second thing, there's really three things. The second thing would be that it tapped into all that other stuff I was writing about in that chapter, this sense of needing a homeland, of feeling uh, not just dispersed from other Black people, but feeling dispersed from citizenship, you know, alienated from basic rights, uh, treated like a second-class citizen, facing lynching and violence at every turn. Uh, black intellectuals called that period, the late 19th, early 20th century, the uh, nadir of, of African-American history, because it was really a low point in the sense that the federal government was ruling against the right of Black people with Plessy versus Ferguson and all these other Supreme Court rulings. State governments were supporting white supremacy. Uh, the Klan res is resurrected in 1915. Incredibly brutal white massacres, riots, lynchings all over the country, not just in the South by any means. Exactly. You know, you got Wilmington, you got Springfield, Illinois, 1908. You've got um, New York, 1900. I mean, you can go on and on and on. So there's something attractive of not just the idea of a homeland, because that's not the thing that always attracted people, but the idea of power, the spectacle of Garveyism in the streets of New York, where Marcus Garvey is dressed like a general, and the Black Cross nurses are like the kind of gendered uh, sort of expression of maternal power, the, the parallel to the Red Cross. You've got the Black men dressed in military uniforms as if they're going to be the ones to, to do the work of the new Hannibal. They're going to redeem Africa through uh, violence. And this is the era of what? The era of imperialism. You know, U.S. imperialism is at its height, imperialism around the world. And they're saying, we're going to have our own imperialism. We're going to take back Africa. So all that's very attractive. But one last thing, and this is the third reason why it's attractive, because the UNIA was so decentralized that people could write their own rules. Sure, you read the Negro world. But when I say write their own rules, the biggest, most active chapters in North America were not in cities, but in the countryside. You know, the rural chapters. And there, people were fighting for things like sharecroppers, being able to get a decent wage for chopping and picking cotton, or a fair share in the share of cotton production, uh, where anti-lynching was the order of the day. Um, and that's why you know, a lot of people who were Garveyites had no intention of leaving. They had intention of fighting. And they were fighting on many different fronts. And the belief that you're part of an international movement that will support you gave you confidence. 
I mean, Garveyites were organizing domestic workers in places like Louisiana. Uh, they were everywhere. And it's not an accident that many of the Garveyites in places like Harlem and Chicago, uh, when Garveyism kind of collapsed, ended up joining the Communist Party. Let's turn to, to Black socialists and communists. All the way back, you, you write to the Socialist Labor Party, founded in 1876, and then the Socialist Party of America, founded in 1901. You write, quote, the second international social democratic politics proved more broad-based and popular than the socialism of its predecessors. But its approach to the Negro question remained unchanged. Racism was merely a feature of capitalism. Kill the latter, and the former would wither away. Why, why did this class-first orientation so characterize late 19th and early 20th century American socialism? Was it, was it predetermined by, by the writing of, say, Marx, or was it more overdetermined by what a white-led socialist movement would look like in the settler colony? It, there's a couple of things. One, throughout the 19th century, class first, we call it that class first, has really characterized socialism even before the creation of the International Working Men's Association. You go back to 1848 and the emigres who fled the 1848 revolutions, many of them were, you could argue, class first. But when I say class first, it's not a, it's, that's not really the fundamentally the question. The question is, who's in the class? That is the question. Who is the class? So again, to go back to the mid-19th century, uh, there were German emigres who came to the United States who were socialists, who were insisting, and Marx said the same thing, basically, that don't forget the, those Black people are in the class with you. So there's a distinction between like class first, meaning the white working class, and class first, meaning don't forget the class is all. We shall be all, as the song goes, you know. Um, and that's why you have German emigres who become abolitionists uh, and see the abolition of slavery as a fundamental movement to build class power and to overthrow capitalism. Others, on the other hand, are saying, wait a second, the working class is being undermined by slavery. So we need to like not abolish slavery, but get the slave masters out and have free soil. You know, so we're, and we don't want those Negroes in the class because they're not really at the class. They're like slaves. That's real. That is scientific racism, uh, cultural racism, this idea that these people are not really human or that indigenous people, for example, are really savages and natives and not really part of the civilized class. That is a class first ideology that's based on exclusion rather than mass inclusion. So they're both class first, but it's just like, who's the class? Now, to your question, late 19th century is a unique moment because keep in mind, <laughs> as you know, better than anyone, it's not sure, it's not clear like who the white people are. And I don't mean just black people. This is a period of heightened immig immigration from Southern Europe and from Italy, from Slavic, so-called Slavic countries, you know, the heart and soul of that of the second international, you know, after the first international collapses, are in North America are who? The immigrant workers. And they have what they call like foreign language federations. They're not even writing articles in English all the time. Some are Finnish, 
Uh, some are in Italian, like some of the Italian anarchists who are not necessarily second international, but they're radicals. You've got German language. Um, and part of the issue of the socialists, the fight was we need to Americanize the Socialist Party. We need to stop doing this foreign language business and get people to be American. And what's the irony? The irony, of course, is that who speaks English and has been here longer than anyone <laughs> except for indigenous people? It's black people. Um, and so some, it's the Socialist Party of America, the Socialist Labor Party, all, they're all struggling with this question, the Negro question. So black people are still considered to be kind of excluded, possibly comrades, maybe so, as they're trying to Americanize a party that's where people are still publishing stuff in different languages. Um, that's the dilemma of the second international North America. And so they're saying class first, but they're saying that to be in the class, you've got to be American. Um, not everyone thinks that. I mean, it's again, this different socialist tendencies. The IWW is a socialist movement with, that has some anarchists in them. It has all kinds of syndicalists. But the IWW is saying, look, we got one big union. We're syndicalists who believe in one big union, and that means everybody, don't matter what language you speak or your color of the color of your skin. I say that's not everywhere. I mean, just there were black IWW leaders like Ben Fletcher who dealt with racism within uh, the union, but for the most part, the ideology was that there's no outside of the class except for the bourgeoisie, the landholders, the corporate figures, uh, the bosses. But our class is everybody. So all these tensions are whirl swirling around, swirling around. But it really comes down to not the question of class first, but the question of who constitutes the working classes. And it wasn't a settled matter. And it becomes something like a settled matter with the collapse of the Second International. And and I mean, zooming out even further in the late 19th century of the Knights of Labor, which was relatively inclusive in terms of black people, but with much contention, ended up backing Chinese exclusion, complicated situations of solidarity in the South with the, the larger populist movement with the, the farmers and colored farmers alliances where sort of, you know, so-called social equality was disavowed, but a forthright case for economic solidarity was compellingly put forth? Exactly. And it's very hard to make any sweeping generalizations because even the Knights of Labor, that in theory was all-inclusive in practice, it just depended on where you were. The Knights of Labor believed in separate chapters, you know, so, and, and some Black people supported that. They were like, you know, we want separate chapters because we don't want to pay our dues and support white people when we have needs. The Knights of Labor also, as you know, wasn't big on strikes. They actually, you know, oppose strikes for the most part. And many of the chapters in the South were like, we're not, we're going to ignore the, the dictum that we don't strike. Instead, we're going to strike anyway. Uh, as you mentioned, the Chinese exclusion laws, the Knights of Labor officially supported Chinese exclusion, but there were Black members of the Knights who were like, no, that's not a good idea. <laughs> you know? So all these things exist and circulate and they set the stage for uh, what would become the sort of key struggles around how, what the socialist movement or movements will look like, what they'll fight for. Because on the one hand, part of the contradictions 
within the Knights of Labor was the belief that we could win power through peace, through negotiation, by good citizenship, by excluding those who are not citizens, and by not waging a class war. You know, they, 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 it's not like they weren't knowledgeable, knowledgeable or cognizant of class distinctions, but they felt like, okay, there's a better way to do this. The Second International is sort of the same thing in that uh, part of the division between anarchists and socialists and syndicalists is that the socialists, just like the Bernstein and Kautsky uh, leadership in Europe, were saying, well, you know what? We could win through elections. We could win through peaceful means. We could win through fair labor organizing. Um, and so the IWW and Socialist Labor Party and the uh, Socialist Party were not on the same page on that. But all along, they're still dealing with the question of who belongs and who is not. Who is an American and who is not? Why is this important? Well, because nationalism is the, 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 the razor edge that slices the socialist movement. It's the thing that led to the collapse of the Second International. Because, again, Europe's a good example. North America's a good example, especially in Europe. All these socialists were like, yeah, yeah, one, one big international working class. But when World War I takes place, they're like, no, I'm German. No, I'm Italian. Well, Italians were actually pretty good. Socialists in Italy. But no, I'm French. No. And they begin to participate and even support a war, right, that was around struggles over colonies and driven by nationalism. And Lenin, and Lenin's like, I thought the deal was when the capitalist class started a war that we were all going to mount a revolution. <laughs> we're the only ones who did that. <laughs> exactly. No, no, it's true. In, in, and in defense of some of the American socialists, it so happens that some of the American socialists and anarchists were at the leadership of the anti-war movement during World War I. Um, we all know Eugene Debs went to prison not just because he was a socialist, but because he was against the war. Uh, we know, um, you know, anarchists like Emma Goldman and others ended up, because of the anti-war position, uh, paying a price for that. Ben Fletcher, leader of the IWW, he also was arrested because of his anti-war activities. You know, so in many ways, the U.S. socialists, at least the most revolutionary of them, didn't play the game of, uh, you know, xenophobia Except, <laughs> and this deserves deeper research, except when we think of the First World War, not just in terms of Europe and European fights over colonies, but in terms of U.S. intervention in Haiti, in the Dominican Republic, uh, in Veracruz, Mexico, in uh, this, even the U.S. war against Mexico after the Mexican Revolution, a kind of unspoken war, but still military. And Christina Heatherton's new book talks about this beautifully. It's a very important book. This is the Western front of World War I. And this is also the place where the question of internationalism is on the line. Do you support the Mexican Revolution? That's a question of internationalism. The Mexican Revolution was the first major revolution of the 20th century. It preceded Russia by almost a decade, six years, basically. You know, it depends if you count the 1905 revolution. But, you know, Mexico was very, very important. And Mexico was the model of a possible social democracy 
uh, with this new constitution of 1917 that was a danger to the United States. The question is, well, where did the socialists stand on Mexico? Some socialists went down to Mexico to fight, and they were the ones that ended up in the Communist Party. Um, so this question of, of internationalism and what does the working class do for each other, how do you fight these battles in the midst of a global war, especially battles against colonial domination, like in Haiti, Dominican Republic, uh, elsewhere, that's always the fundamental question for socialists. And tragically, we have more examples of socialists in this period supporting colonial domination than opposing it. Let's turn to, to Black communists. You write, quote, if the Third International, or the Common Turn, proved more sympathetic and sensitive to the racial nature of American class struggle, it is largely because Black folk made it so. And that story really starts, well, it could start a lot of places, but a good place to start it is with a group called the African Blood Brotherhood, which was founded in 1918. Who were they, and what perspective did they and other Black communists bring to the party, not only to the U.S. Communist Party, but really to global communism? The African Blood Brotherhood was initially a secret organization uh, made up of socialists. Its leaders included people like Cyril Briggs, who would join the Communist Party, W.A. Domingo, uh, and, and many others who were socialists in their orientation, nationalists in their orientation. Unlike Garvey, and they were kind of enemies of, of Garvey, though some of them actually joined the Garvey movement soon after the ABB collapsed. But for them, they were class-oriented nationalists, but were focused on the fights within the United States around lynching, disfranchisement. They had no intention of going anywhere. They had active chapters, certainly in New York. Many of them were, were of Caribbean descent, like Garvey, but not all. They had chapters in places like Oklahoma, Virginia, among mine workers. So they were like kind of a black communist organization before there was, literally, before there was a communist party. Because they, they go back at least a couple of years before the communist party is formed in the United States. And World War I was a really crucial moment for their formation. How did they get folded into the, the communist party? That's all up to dispute. You know? The simple answer is that some of them actually joined the Communist Party before the ABB folded. They joined um, in secret. So in other words, it wasn't that the Communist Party necessarily went out their way to recruit them and try to destroy the organization. They were in both. People like Harry Haywood, for example, was uh, in the African Blood Brotherhood and then the Communist Party. Um, they saw their uh, positions identical. That led to a split in the Brotherhood because there were those who didn't who felt like even if they were sympathetic to the Communist Party, uh, they should remain independent. And for a while, they did remain independent while also being members. Why does this matter? A uh, couple reasons. One, your listeners probably know this, but it took. It wasn't until like 1923, really, when, or maybe 22, when the Communist Party was was consolidated into one party. And even then, it really wasn't one party. Uh, it was it was a split, a series of splits that eventually uh, the Communist International forced some of the tendencies to come together to form what became the Communist Party USA. Uh, there was the Communist Party of America, the Lovestoneites, and all these other kinds of splits. So it didn't make a lot of sense for the African Blood Brotherhood, which was a coherent, radical organization itself, 
to fold into a movement that was divided as it was, as it were. So that's one thing. The other thing to keep in mind is that when that split occurred, there were other Black socialists who were not necessarily in the African Blood Brotherhood, people like Hubert Harrison, and people like Ben Fletcher, who was IWW. He had a relationship to the Communist Party briefly, but really was opposed. Um, they represent another independent Black radical presence, Black left or Black communist presence that's not necessarily CPUSA. So all that to say is that there's a lot of movements taking place in that period from about 19, sort of 16 to about 1925. It's not clear what would ascend as the major left organization, major Marxist-Leninist organization at the time. And as we know, even that wasn't permanent because you have Trotskyist movements, which also attract uh, Black radicals as it, as, it, as it is, you know. The, the ideological orientation of the Bolsheviks and the Comintern around, around national self-determination and colonialism, particularly from, from Lenin, Indian communist M.N. Roy, that had an obvious appeal to Black American communists like like Harry Haywood and Claude McKay, who who then in turn pushed communists to embrace the so-called Black Belt thesis, which posited that Black Americans in the South constituted a colonized nation with a right to self-determination. What, though, did the Black Belt thesis concretely mean for Black communists and for American communism more generally? Because you write, quote, the new slogan did not persuade black communists to attempt to seize Mississippi and secede from the United States, nor did it bring black folk to the party in droves. But but in many places, black people were joining the party in large numbers, including places like Alabama, which we discussed in our last interview. What what role then did the Black Belt thesis play in making all of that possible if it wasn't you know, that, that people on this, the man on the street, woman on the street were, were hearing about it and going, okay, yeah, I'm joining the CP. <laughs> right. Well, one thing, which is true, the party actually did not work really hard to promote the Black Belt thesis in the streets and the countryside. In fact, when you read the, the party newspapers, the Daily Worker, the Southern Worker, it wasn't really a major part of their uh, organizing work. Or propaganda work. It was in like the journal. It was like articulated at the journal level. At the journal level. So like you read like the Communist International publications, the Comintern publications, or the the Communist, the, the sort of more theoretical journals. There's some debate and discussion around it, but it wasn't necessarily an organizing slogan. However, it was an organizing slogan in terms of securing the right of Black communists to have some control over print culture uh, and some independent autonomous organizations that could fight for, for Black liberation, Black rights. So the League of Struggle for Negro Workers, the American Negro Labor uh, Congress, the publications like The Liberator, you know, all these publications and organizations were the manifestation of self-determination. So self-determination meant that there is an independent Black struggle that is related to class oppression, in fact, fundamental to class oppression, 
but it's specific to the conditions and experiences of Black people. That is what self-determination translated as. So you can actually fight for basic civil rights, like against lynch law, fight, you know, you can include under the name class war prisoners, Black youth like the Scottsboro Nine, who were arrested not because they were leading a union or, you know, fighting the police around, you know, strike activity, but rather they were just Black traveling on a train and two white women were close enough for them to be arrested. And to redefine them as class war prisoners is to really rethink the class struggle. And that's what made the Communist Party unique. Um, no matter what people might say, it's, and even my own critique, it was the first, the Third International, particularly CPUSA, was the first organization on the left that wasn't all Black that said Black people's struggles matter in and of themselves, not as a subordinate or secondary status to class struggle. This is part of the class struggle. That was a huge break. And it came from, you know, the Black Belt thesis wasn't simply Nazanoff and a bunch of Russians sitting around. It was Black radicals themselves. Uh, going back to Claude McKay, when he addressed the Comintern, uh, Harry Haywood, when he was there, Otto Husvald, who actually was not all supportive of that as much. Um, but even, even before that, the South African communists uh, who were pushing for what's called the Native Republic thesis, the right of self-determination for African people in South Africa. Uh, and this was very significant because South Africa, around the time of the second Congress and the third Congress of the Comintern, um, in between that time, South Africa had this big minor strike called the Rand Revolt, which white miners went out on strike. And the slogan was, workers of the world unite and fight for white South Africa. That's not necessarily class struggle. You know? Meanwhile, those workers, that strike was, was just overwhelmed and overshadowed by a much larger African miner strike, which is not fighting for white South Africa. So all those developments led to a real rethinking, not just of the right to land and self-determination and the separation of the state. That just became more metaphorical or symbolic of the larger question, and that is that class struggle ought to and must include the independent struggles of Black people because of the unique way in which they, the unique position they occupy within a racialized class hierarchy. After the heyday of the CP, Maoist China became a particularly strong reference point for Black radicals from the mid through the early part of the late 20th century, and really for all sorts of radicals. You write, quote, The status of the Chinese as people of color served as a powerful political tool in mobilizing support from Africans and African-descended people. China offered black radicals a colored or third world Marxist model that enabled them to challenge a white and Western vision of class struggle, a model they shaped and reshaped to suit their own cultural and political realities. Also closer to home, Cuba, firmly, if sometimes complexly in the Soviet camp rather than the Chinese one, also loomed really large. And you write, quote, 
the Chinese and Cubans' willingness to meet force with force also made these revolutions attractive to black radicals in the age of nonviolent passive resistance. And one really important figure here is the president of Monroe, North Carolina's NAACP, Robert Williams, who organized and advocated armed self-defense and then, under constant threat, fled to Cuba in 1961 in 1961 for for political asylum. Who was Williams? Someone that that many Dig listeners are probably familiar with, but but is not so well known generally. And what and what sort of politics did he practice and advocate first first from North Carolina and then later from Cuba? So Robert Williams was a former veteran, served in the Marines, came back himself was familiar with left organizations, with Reed's Daily Worker and whatnot. So he and his his wife, Mabel Williams, settled in uh, Monroe, North Carolina. Uh, and as an advocate of armed self-defense, he actually wasn't exceptional. He was not exceptional. Uh, armed self-defense was, generally speaking, the default position of Black organizers, not just in the 19th century, but in the 20th century as well. Don't forget, you know, Dr. King kept a pistol in his house until uh, I think it was Baird Rustin who convinced him not to. Uh, So part of what I'm kind of arguing there before we get to Rob Williams specifically is that nonviolent pastor resistance was the rupture in the history of Black radical movements, in the history of Black civil rights movements for that matter. And so what Williams was doing wasn't unique, and in fact, was replicated throughout the South, especially in places like Mississippi. And we see this in Akinyele uh, Umoja's amazing book, We Will Shoot Back. So I want to—I don't want to exceptionalize Rob Williams, except to say that he, what made him and Mabel Williams exceptional was their, their internationalism. So long story short, he was organizing against the Klan, armed self-defense groups that were men and women. Um, he got expelled from the NAACP as a result of doing that work uh, and defending uh, Mae Mallory, a radical Black woman who went to jail. She you know, comes out of Cleveland, uh, went to jail for participating in armed self-defense and other things. Rob Williams also was an inspiration for another group called the Revolutionary Action Movement, which was founded um, really in, in uh, early 1960s, coming out of, of Ohio and having connections to California, Philadelphia, and elsewhere. Being really consequential in Philadelphia in particular. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, and so when Robin Mabel Williams basically saved the life of a white couple, you know, they were charged uh, with kidnapping, and they fled the country and ended up in Cuba. And you know, Rob Williams already had a relationship with Cuba because he was a supporter of the Cuban Revolution had a uh, word was that he had a Cuban flag in his backyard. And he ends up going there, living there under uh, uh, Fidel Castro, becoming close to um, Che Guevara, uh, ends up having to leave because there's some differences and goes to China. He wants to go to Vietnam first and then ends up in China, where he is there with another uh, amazing Black radical, Vicky Garvin. He and Mabel are there with Vicky Garvin. And they're, you know, working... Uh, for black liberation within the context of of communist China, and by this time, by the time he gets there, in you know, sort of the early '60s, China had already been 
more than a decade, you know, into its revolution. And it had had many, many Black visitors in support, including W.B. Du Bois and others, uh, to, in support of, of the Chinese Revolution, you know. Uh, but Rob Williams and Mabel Williams were always independent, though. Uh, his thinking centered on two really big things. That is, again, the Black liberation, the right of Black self-determination, and connecting that to a vision of global class liberation, or revolution, rather, a global class revolution. And that, in some ways, reflected the politics of Ram, you know. Yeah, let's talk more more about Ram, which under the leadership of Max Stanford declared its support for Marxism-Leninism, Mao Zedong thought. You write, quote, As members of an organization made up primarily of college-educated intellectuals, though many did not matriculate in order to participate in the movement full-time, Ram activists thought long and hard about the role of students in the petite bourgeoisie in the coming revolution. In an article, Revolutionary Nationalism and the Afro-American Student, published in January 1965, Stanford argued that black students of the war baby generation embodied several contradictions at once, contradictions that could lead them to embrace capitalism and white values, check out altogether, or join the revolutionary movement. I thought that was really fascinating. It reminds me of uh, analyses of the contradictory class position of the PMC from Barbara Ehrenreich or more recently, more recently, Gabe Winant. And, and it's something more specifically I plan on discussing in the not-too-distant future with, with Donna Murch when I interview her on Living for the City, her history of the, the Panthers emerging from among student radicals. What was Stanford arguing here about this emerging demographic and, and its contradictory class identity? What he was arguing really was specific to the, the social formation of RAM itself and the fact that it emerged as a student organization initially. You know, this is a group that actually had a critique of uh, and, and was reading um, The Wretched of the Earth in French, actually, before it was translated into English and had a, a kind of a critique of Fanon. And part of it had to do with the fact that they felt like Fanon wasn't really aware of the situation in North America. But part of this also has to do with what it means for a countercultural movement to emerge in the mid to late 1960s without a critique of capitalism. How easy it is to to take up the mantle of revolution, but still adopt the values of of capitalist society. And this is where he embraces what Amilcar, Amilcar Cabral later calls kind of class suicide. That, you know, there's no, he says, there's no guarantee uh, that revolution is the path that students are going to adopt, and that there's no guarantee for that matter that the intelligentsia is even capable of leading uh, a, a true revolution. And he himself comes out of that, you know, the, the black intelligentsia. But he's saying what was actually a pretty popular position that only the working class is a revolutionary class, but that working class for black people isn't always in the factories or in the mines, sometimes they're unemployed. Now, why is this significant? Because this is, this is the, the period of the great society uh, when there's a kind of mythology that, that all boats have risen, that everyone's employed, that life is good, 
but the very structural conditions that led to the expansion of white suburbia, uh, that led to an element of the white working class to make the leap to a kind of middle class home ownership, was the one that led to the organized abandonment of cities that left a lot of Black people, Black youth in particular, unemployed. And that led to an expansion of violent gangs and other social formations that don't look revolutionary. And so in, them, in other words, what he was saying was simultaneous or anticipated the Black Panther Party's focus on organizing the so-called lumpen proletariat, those people who are often outside of the market, the formal market, who don't have jobs, who hustle for a living. Uh, and so there was a kind of, I would say, romanticization, or at least certainly an interest in that class that you know social scientists call the underclass, the people who um, are not always beneficiaries of stable employment. And again, that's, this is up for debate, whether or not that was a revolutionary class or not. The point of writing about it is to say, this is the discourse. This is the way that people are seeing themselves. And this is also one of the reasons why, by the early 1970s, a lot of American radicals, not just Black radicals, decide that there's no future for them in the university. There's no future for them in knowledge as a knowledge worker. And they end up going into the factories, doing industrial concentration work, organizing unions, and saying that where the working class is, that's where the revolution will be. I'm Astra Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast that helps us understand the past so we can organize for a better future. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Men with the Pink Triangle, the true life-and-death story of homosexuals in the Nazi death camps by Heinz Hager. For decades, history ignored the Nazi persecution of gay people. Only with the rise of the gay movement in the 1970s did historians finally recognize that gay people, like Jews and others deemed undesirable, suffered enormously at the hands of the Nazi regime. Of the few who survived the concentration camps, even fewer ever came forward to tell their stories. This heart-wrenchingly vivid account of one man's arrest and imprisonment by the Nazis for the crime of homosexuality, now with a new foreword by Let the Record Show author Sarah Schulman, remains an essential contribution to gay history and our understanding of historical fascism. The Men with the Pink Triangle by Heinz Hager, out now from Haymarket Books and available at haymarketbooks.org where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. One really important influence on on this generation was, was Harold Cruz, particularly his 1962 essay, Revolutionary Nationalism in the Afro-American. He wrote, quote, The failure of American Marxists to understand the bond between the Negro and the colonial peoples of the world has led to their failure to develop theories that would be of value to Negroes in the United States. The revolutionary initiative has passed to the colonial world and in the United States is passing to the Negro, while Western Marxists theorize temporize, 
and debate. Who was Cruz and where where does he fit into black radical intellectual history and and what accounts for for his influence at the time, if not so his great influence at the time, if not so much today? Well, Harold Cruz was a member of the Communist Party uh, in the 1950s, and he left. And he was not only just a member of the Communist Party, he was the theater and film critic, or theater critic for The Daily Worker. This is significant because he had taken a position that the left failed at the level of culture, you know, especially Black liberals and Black leftists. We failed at the level level of culture. And that... um, you know, he eventually would go on to write The Crisis of Negro Intellectual, published in 1967, which was a critique of people like, you know, Lorraine Hansberry and others, uh, whom he accused of not really being revolutionary enough. And so when he wrote this piece, he was basically, and he wrote it in, um, in what was the emerging New Left uh, publication. So it was like for a New Left audience. It wasn't necessarily for the audience that would become Ram, um, though Ram really dug what he was saying. And there are two elements to his argument. Uh, one is that it's, it's, it echoes Fanon when Fanon says, you know, Marxism needs to be stretched to be relevant to the conditions of Black people, to be revised, to be improvised. And so Cruz is saying, we cannot just kind of accept uh, a Marxism that was we've inherited, that focuses on um, or rooted in European class relations. The second thing he's saying is that, and he's saying what Fanon says. You know, f- when Fanon ends the Wretch of the Earth, saying, you know, calling for a new man, and that in fact we're here to save Europe, and this, you know, we're we're the we're basically the the revolutionary force that could save the planet and save Europe from itself. That is to say, the the when Cruz says the revolutionary initiative has passed to the colonial world, he's saying now the third world, that term is being used now, the global South, is the force that will bring about world revolution. And what he says in that 1962 article anticipates what Dr. King says. When Dr. King, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King gives his his anti uh, war speech is his Vietnam speech, and says, you know, there's there's a kind of new revolution emerging, and it's not coming from the United States; it's coming from the rest of the world, and the U.S. is playing a role in suppressing that that new revolution that we need that's against materialism, racism. So, so you could see why Cruz's argument would be so appealing, especially to Ram, that which makes the argument that. That we're not just talking about international colonialism, but domestic colonialism, which is to say, black people have more in common uh, as colonized people within the United States with colonial peoples around the world. Um, and so Ram's making the argument that the revolution for the world was not going to just take place in the third world, but within the United States led by black people. And those black people often the lumpen proletariat. You write that that urban rebellions and organizations like RAM laid the foundation for the Black Panther Party's emergence in Oakland, and that the the Panthers diverged not only from cultural nationalists, but also from from other revolutionary nationalists on the left. What made the Panthers 
revolutionary vision for black people in the United States and for everyone, really, in the United States so distinct. And also, I think you suggest that the Panthers' attack on cultural nationalists, specifically Ron Karenga's uh, US organization, a- as pork chop nationalists, was was a bit reductive. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, okay. I'll take the first part of the question, and that is what what made them revolutionary in, in the, the, the Rams. So let's go back. So Ram, I mean, you know, Bobby Seale and others were members of Ram. You know, in other words, the the, the relationship between Ram and the Black Panthers was was not even analogy. It was direct. People came out of Ram. People came out of Soul Book, which is a publication that came out of California, but you know, put together by Ram members. Uh, it came out the Bay Area. So, in some ways, the Black Panther Party adopted almost all the elements of Ram. As ten point program, you could find elements of it in in Ram's program before that. And what made them distinctive was their embrace of Cruz's idea of thorough. Uh, revolution of internal colonialism, recognizing Black people as colonized peoples, that they were anti-capitalists and socialists fundamentally, uh, that they not only supported the right to self-determination, but turned to the United Nations as a greater authority than the U.S. state when they talk about having a plebiscite for the right of Black people to succeed. Now, let me just make a quick, it's not a side, but a reference to the Black Belt thesis. What's interesting about the Black Belt thesis is that while it wasn't as popular in the 30s, it becomes quite popular in the 60s, you know? Um, and even though the Black Panther Party didn't embrace it directly, what they did embrace was the idea of national self-determination for Black people within the United States as a realistic thing, as, as something that people should be able to vote on. And it was also formed against the ongoing state violence that Black people were experiencing. And you know, the Black Panther Party didn't stay the same. It changed over time. They moved to survival programs and other things like that. But it was truly revolutionary for the things that they supported. One thing they argued for was one way to reduce police violence is to get rid of the police and replace them with elected groups of public safety that would basically help and protect Black people or people in the neighborhoods as opposed to just, you know, like reforming the police. Uh, so to go back to this question about cultural nationalism, cultural nationalism, pork chop nationalism, these were epithets that had very little to do with actual reality because the truth of the matter is that the Black Panther Party, like Ram, also strongly believed that there's got to be a cultural revolution, you know, whether they're inspired by China or not that culture is a very important part of the struggle, which is why, look, the Panthers had their own rock and roll, funk, R&B group called the Lumpins, which which recorded. They worked with Horace Tapscott, and Elaine Brown herself was a singer. Um, So in the music field and art, so culture was very important, revolutionary culture as far as they're concerned. What they criticized in Maulana Karinga and us organization was... A, they didn't believe that they were willing to take action to defend uh, Black people. B, that they had no class analysis uh, and that they were 
atavistic in that Karinka supported adopting African religious practices like Dogon, uh, wearing African clothes, and that this stood in for actual revolutionary activity. And one big difference is that the Black Panthers always, from the very beginning, believed in building alliances across racial lines. They were never nationalists in the sense that uh, it was an all-Black organization just for Black people, about Black people, led by Black people. They all were always were building connections. The Rainbow Coalition that emerged in Chicago under the leadership of Fred Hampton uh, was itself an example of Panther politics. Uh, us organization wasn't moving in that direction in the same way. However, one of the reasons why I say it's kind of oversimplification because Karenga himself was inspired by and shaped by elements of Marxism, uh, by the Chinese Revolution, and did have a class analysis, even if the point wasn't to build alliances uh, across uh, racial lines. Us organization did have uh, some kind of sort of political and economic agenda. Um, they were pushing for self-determination, even for this question of land. Uh, but they also believed that the cultural terrain that is trying to do what Mar Marcus Garvey wanted to do, that is transform Black people, give them a sense of pride, a sense of direction, was key to building a radical movement in North America. You, you make an important argument about the periodization of Black struggle in the 20th century. You write, quote, the flowering of Black nationalism in the mid to late 1960s is usually presented as an evolutionary process, a stage in the development of post-war Black politics. It's a neat typology, to be sure, but one that obscures more than it reveals. In fact, you continue, quote, a vision of global class revolution led by oppressed people of color was not an outgrowth of the civil rights movement's failure, but existed alongside, sometimes in tension with, the movement's main ideas. And... I was just reminded recently that Medgar Evers, just the supreme avatar of a, a supreme avatar of the classical phase of the civil rights movement, that he only joined the NAACP after abandoning plans to wage a national liberation movement, a national liberation movement inspired guerrilla insurgency in the Mississippi Delta, and that he named his first child after Kenyan anti-colonial leader Jomo Kenyatta. So the history, once you start peeling it back a little, is a lot more complex and layered as you write. So what is this conventional historical timeline about often framed framed as the good civil rights movement tipping over into the more extremist, counterproductive black power phase? Where does it come from and what function does it serve? And what what alternative account does extending our historical vision across space and time reveal instead? Well, where it comes from, uh, I couldn't tell you exactly. I do know the work it does. Uh, and what it does do is it creates a sharp break between what's considered to be the good uh, liberal movement and the bad uh, nationalist movement. Uh, and the break usually begins with the Watts Rebellion in 1965. And it's ironic because it's not like the Watts Rebellion was a nationalist insurgency. You know? <laughs> So it, it, that's not even the, the, the division. In many ways, it's a narrative. Well, this is one source, uh, a narrative produced by uh, liberals 
who uh, felt that you know the movement had become too militant, that they weren't really grateful enough to liberals, white liberals, for the work they did and support. And certainly um, the decision on the part of the new SNCC leadership when Kwame Ture or Sophie Carmichael and H. Rap Brown uh, came into power to tell the white folks, like, okay, you need, we, we need to, we're still going to build with you, but you need to basically work in your own communities. That's considered also a significant break and a source of pain for white liberals. We're like, well, you know, we were with you the whole time. Well, part of the myth is that there is one thing called the civil rights movement rather than multiple movements at multiple levels, uh, multiple scales, all at the same time. Black nationalism had had a consistent presence within the United States since the early 19th century. There's not a moment when it didn't exist. And even after World War II, you have the 49th State Movement, for example. Uh, You have various Black nationalist organizations, African-identified, both cultural and political organizations, uh, having headquarters in Brooklyn and Chicago. Uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, for that matter. They existed, and they were there. Sometimes the most uh, militant nationalists you'll find in places like North Carolina and Louisiana in the 50s and 60s, as opposed to just like the nationalists in the North, the integrationists in the South. The integration nationalism, integration separatism uh, divide is a false one for reasons that, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about. But basically, it's false because there were nationalists who wrote for the Liberator magazine in the early 60s, coming out of Harlem, who were not separatists at all. And there were civil rights leaders like Dr. King, for example, who, though he might have um, dismissed Black power, certainly when he writes, you know, where do we go from here, supported elements of a Buy Black campaign, building Black political and economic institutions, and that sort of thing. So that said, what are the consequences of this false divide? RAM disappears in history because it doesn't fit in this good civil rights movement then begats Black power. It's too early and it's too Northern. Yeah, but it's also Southern. Right. Because right, you know, it's too both. <laughs> it's both. It's both because Ram organizes a Black Power conference at Fisk University in Tennessee. At the same time, some of the basic struggles to desegregate schools are taking place in New York City, in Chicago, in Los Angeles. You know, early on. So it's not as if this divide even works. It, it obscures more more than it reveals. If we think about all these movements combined intention with one another and call it the Black Freedom Movement, then it makes a little bit more sense because they're not all agreeing on what Black freedom means. And it's not as if Watts was the first major rebellion. It might have been one of the biggest, but look at a place like Cambridge, Maryland, for example, where Gloria Richardson uh, led what was essentially a rebellion uh, in Cambridge, Maryland, in 1963. And she just passed last year or the year before, I think? Yes, I think a couple of years ago. And that was a, an amazing uh, movement where you had the federal government step in and try to maintain peace in a city that is essentially overturning basic civil rights laws. And she and members of 
the Cambridge uh, nonviolent movement are fighting for basic rights. They're not fighting for integration. They're fighting for better schools. They're fighting for uh, the right to move and live wherever they want to live. And they're fighting for the repeal of discriminatory laws. Um, and that ends up being a, a basic rebellion. And she, and, she, and she carries a gun. Many, many members of the of the movement carry guns to protect themselves. And this is the eastern shore of 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 Maryland, so it's you know sort of neither north nor south, but mid Atlantic. Exactly, um, exactly. Although you know, what's north and south always depends. There's sometimes when Detroit is as south as you can get, or Chicago. Chicago is really <laughs> it's like a southern plantation, depending on where you're living. You know, black radical movements of the '60s and '70s. You argue obviously were were impacted severely by state repression, but they also fell into sometimes dangerous fetishization of revolutionary violence. And that's not just a re- retrospective assessment. Many militants at the time felt the same way. Even Ken Cockrell of the Detroit League of Revolutionary Black Workers in a conference with the, the Panthers said, quote, we feel that the principal responsibility of persons who are concerned about doing political work is that they first of all have an obligation to conduct themselves in such a way as to inv- as to avoid incarceration, because the primary responsibility of revolutionaries is to be about the business of doing revolutionary work. And that means that your first responsibility is to do everything in your power to avoid becoming a defense organization. And Manning Marble, too, writing, I think, in the late 70s, was also concerned about, about revolutionary violence standing in and substituting itself for broader questions of revolutionary strategy. How should we assess that that dynamic? Part part of a long something that's both part of a long-standing politics of black self-defense, but also something more than that in in evaluating the struggles of 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 the, of the sixties and seventies. Well, there's there's definitely a distinction between armed self-defense and what was identified as a revolutionary violence, um, and that's not to say that. Revolutionary violence was even limited to the North. In fact, Mississippi, the very place that where armed self-defense was probably the most pervasive, also had cases where you had, you know, bombings of courthouses and things like that, retaliatory violence. Uh, and again, uh, Akinele Umoja's book, uh, We Will Shoot Back, talks about this. So I think the distinction is important for a couple of reasons. One, Ken Cockrell and others are not rejecting the right of armed self-defense. That's a different matter. You know, when people are coming for you, including the police, for reasons that are basically illegal, extra-legal, then you have that right to defend yourself. But what they're saying is that it's the adventurism of some organizations that are engaged in what they perceive to be guerrilla warfare or kidnappings or robberies that that doesn't help if if movements have to spend all their time bailing people out or doing these uh, uh, defenses. It's it's tricky because most of the people that they're trying to bail out or defend in court are not people who've actually committed crimes. (laughs) That's the thing. I mean, you think about some of the most high-profile defense cases, they're people who actually didn't really do what they're said to have done. Nevertheless, I understand the the concern because it was getting to be very costly 
to have these camp these defense campaigns. And the other thing's strategic, and this is not a new thing, but the whole history of of black people in North America is assessing the strategic and tactical uh, choices that are most effective. And that's why you don't have in North America like a, a whole bunch of like massive slave insurrections in the 19th century. You see them in the 17th century, you know, and part of the 18th century, because demographically it's more possible in terms of security, surveillance, policing. You know, when those things are weak, you can engage in those kinds of things. When those things are strong, you have to come up with something different. And that's part of it. It's like, what is possible? It's not even about uh, fear. It's not about cowardice. It's not about, you know, trying to, to support liberalism. It's about what's tactically smart uh, and effective. That was, that was a sharp division within the movement. And some of the movements that in the late 70s, for example, that ended up attempting various robberies, not that many, or, you know, other kinds of strategies or tactics that were more direct revolutionary violence, they were the ones that um, uh, got derailed. You write that key to the radicalization and leftward turn of many Black nationalists in the 1970s was the the foundation of the African Liberation Support Committee in 1971, which was above all else oriented towards solidarity with the liberation movements of Portuguese Southern Africa. And, and aside for listeners who want to know more about those struggles, my interviews my interviews with Piero Glieses on that are, are excellent. Um, you write, quote, because the ALSC brought together such a broad range of black activists, it became an arena for debate over the creation of a black radical agenda. While most ALSC organizers were actively anti-imperialists, the number of black Marxists in leadership positions turned out to be a point of contention. I think this is this is a really important organization for people to know about from from this period. How how did anti-imperialist solidarity serve both to stitch together these these various black visions for freedom, more nationalists, more socialists, and also ultimately tear them apart? I would imagine China's foreign policy after the Sino-Soviet split did not did not help matters. Right. Okay. So let's let's <laughs> let's go back. Um, timing is everything. You know, the period of time we're talking about is everything. So let's talk about the period of the 70s, because I think that answers a lot of questions about the divide. So class was always a factor in Black freedom movements, but especially during the period of African Liberation Support Committee, because what were they supporting? They were supporting mostly the armed movements against Portuguese Africa, as well as the armed movements against the British in, uh, in uh, Zimbabwe or what was then Southern Rhodesia, and certainly in South Africa, uh, the struggle for liberation there. So in the Portuguese uh, colonies, the big divide was around class and Marxism because you know, this is not your flag uh, independence uh, of, of the 1950s and early 60s. Uh, this is a period of protracted armed struggle going back really to the late 50s against the Portuguese. And in the process, 
those armed struggles, in its, and this is sort of the theme of, of freedom regimes itself, led to uh, the creation of liberated zones, uh, debates within, internally within organizations to see how do we rebuild the new society based on what? And a lot of it was, would be based on um, socialism. The uh, PAIGC, Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde, uh, the MPLA in Angola, uh, the um, Frilimo in Mozambique, these were organizations that already adopted Marxism. Uh, and so by the time the African Liberation Support Committee begins to meet with some of these revolutionaries after 1971, uh, that's simultaneous with the industrial concentration movement, with Black radicals saying, you know, we need a class analysis, we need to talk about class. And there's a big split between those who say, you know, Black liberation means all of us, and we need to do that first before we attend to class, versus those saying that we need to embrace Marxism, we need to have a class analysis. And that was a big split, which led, some would say, to the demise of the ALSC, but it certainly led to a big split in the movement, which continued after that. And that continued into, this is like 76 is a split, as you move like four years later into the National Black uh, United Front, the National Black Independent Political Party, uh, the efforts to challenge the Reagan regime. There's a split between the nationalists and the Marxists. And that's not to say that they're not nationalists who, who embrace Marxism or elements of it. But Barack is so interesting because he's someone who eventually, around that time, embraces Marxism fully. You know, his, his poetry changes, his arguments change slightly. He moves away from the cultural nationalism that, that shaped his politics up to that point. He and others, you know, end up becoming, I wouldn't say more isolated, but certainly there's a way in which the the liberal elites, black elites, who were themselves sympathetic to certain aspects of nationalism, but certainly coming out of the civil rights movement, end up breaking with Baraka and others. You know, whether you're talking about Kenneth Gibson in, in, in Newark, or you're talking about um, uh, some of the elites who end up holding political office. Um, and this is, a, I think, a significant uh, split in the movement that is still with us to this day. And it's a split that's sort of abetted, it sounds like you're suggesting, by the sort of consolidation of a Black lead and Black political class that had never quite existed like it began to exist during that period, and which also coincided with the neoliberal turn and the marginalization of the left more generally. Right. That's absolutely true. In fact, the best story that illustrates this to me is compare the 1968 Memphis sanitation workers' strike uh, that uh, King was a part of, a supporter of, where sanitation workers were trying to get better wages and better working conditions for mostly Black poor workers uh, against the mayor, Henry Loeb, who opposed it. And King, of course, died there in Memphis, you know, fighting that fight. Uh, fast forward to 1977, and you have uh, Maynard Jackson, the black mayor of Atlanta, civil rights activist, supporter, same thing, 
sanitation workers strike. They're living poverty wages. Some of them have to go on welfare to be able to survive. Uh, they go on strike. He not only breaks the strike, you know, breaks the union, refuses to negotiate. And when when the sanitation workers come back and say, look, uh, let's just get our jobs back. We won't even ask for anything. He's like, no, you can't. And who does he get support from? The NAACP, the uh, the Urban League, uh, SCLC, that's King's organization. Uh, King's father, Daddy King, supports Maynard Jackson. It's 11 years difference. And the kind of economic vision, the radical vision of a working class insurgency that could change the nation is replaced by uh, a black leadership class that is promoting the kind of neoliberal policies and, and actually embodying the very thing that Fanon and Amilcar Cabral and others warned against. That is, a black, a black petty bourgeoisie in power uh, who would just be the junior partners in the maintenance of racial capitalism. Yeah, I mean, b- black political power at the urban level without progressive power in Washington can look a lot like flag independence in the post-colony without an NIEO. Exactly. Relatedly, we've so we've been discussing these these black radical visions, but what sort of relationships existed between black radical visions and more mainstream black political visions as the power and influence of, of various sorts of black politics shifted over time, both both within black politics and American politics more generally, because there's a bit of Booker T. Washington in Malcolm X, but also in in Clarence Thomas. And the calls for black political power, as we were just discussing, could be at home amongst a, a revolutionary collective, but also the ordinary local brokerage politics of a local democratic political machine, something we can quite starkly see in the sweep of history stretching from the 1972 National Black Political Convention in Gary to Wilson Good, Philadelphia's first black mayor, presiding over the move bombing just a little over a decade later in 1985. Well, <laughs> let me just say something a little bit disruptive. And that is to say, well, two, two things. One, I think it is easy to see these relationships, like, for example, between the things that Booker T. Washington and Malcolm X may have in, in common. I also think that these differences are starker than we think, very stark. And they're stark for a couple of reasons. One is that Malcolm X of 1955 is not Malcolm X of 1963, is not Malcolm X of January 1965. And that, you know, as much as he would speak uh, and embrace a language of Black economic power in the form of business, I think he began to question that. Same thing with Dr. King, same thing with, with uh, someone like Julian Bond, who is someone who has lived it in many different ways, both as a radical within SNCC, as an anti-war activist, then elected f- figure uh, doing things that he felt compelled to do, and then leaving uh, electoral politics to become even more radical than he was as elected official. So I think there's some constraints and also dynamics in terms of, of these shifts. But I do think there's a sharp uh, distinction between, say, a Wilson Good and uh, Matulu Shakur, that there's really no comparison. 
uh, or uh, Mumia Abu Jamal, two people you know out of Philadelphia, as it were, and that there are moments in electoral politics where that radical possibility does emerge. It does erupt. Um, and here's a couple of examples. You know, one is uh, whatever problems are happening in Jackson, Mississippi right now, Chokwe Lumumba, uh, the elder, as well as Chokwe Antar Lumumba and the movement around them, were trying to implement at the level of government and legislation some aspect of a Black economic self-determination that's not based on class power, but based on a kind of horizontalism, based on redistribution. And they're trying that. They're still trying that. But it's very, very, very hard. One of the things that the forces that keeps them kind of honest in government, or I should if not honest, certainly pressured, is outside organizations that are saying, uh, we don't accept compromise. We want this, we want that. And it's it's a tension. Amir Baraka's son, Ross Baraka, is, you know, mayor of Newark. And for a long time as mayor, he's been trying to implement aspects of, of radical politics or possibility. But again, it's constrained by government. I don't think he lost the ideology, but he's also had to make choices that really progressive or radical people in Newark don't agree with. Um, and that's the problem of governing. No matter what, no matter what your ideology is, governing is governing. And it's always going to be a uh, challenge. It's also a challenge when you run an institution versus just running a, a small organization or a blog. You can pretty much say and do anything you want. Uh, but if you're dependent on funding, if you're dependent on being reelected, if you're dependent on uh, support from a constituency which may not share your politics, then you have to compromise. So I always take these things as, you know, determined by time, place, condition, always, that each thing is is unique and different. And it's hard to say that there is a continuum in the form of formal political institutions. I'm not, sometimes there is, or at least trying to find oxygen. A kind of radical expressions. Sometimes there's not, but there's no easy answer because even if you are a committed revolutionary, you know, based on an assessment of the context of the forces arrayed against you, the forces behind you, that you have to make strategic decisions. You know, it is. Uh, Gramsci talks about, uh, you know, there's a war position and war maneuver. I think the most important thing to focus on, though, isn't strategic or tactical, but the broader vision of what people want. And I think that broader vision isn't always the mirror image of what a successful liberal society is going to look like. Sometimes it's about what the people who are not you don't have. It's about how to build uh, sustainable communities and change the culture so people care about one another and about the earth itself. And sometimes that matters way more than what you can tactically, strategically get in the state. As an aside to listeners, in terms of that question of how someone like Philadelphia Mayor Wilson Good, Wilson Good can come out of a political milieu that was in, in some ways 
fairly radical. Um, I recommend Matthew Countryman's book, Up South, Civil Rights and Black Power in Philadelphia, which I interviewed him a while back on on the show. Let's turn to, to black feminism. You write, quote, radical black feminists have never confined their vision to just the emancipation of black women or women in general, or all black people for that matter. Rather, they are, th- they are the theorists and proponents of a radical humanism committed to liberating humanity and reconstructing social relations across the board. When Bell Hooks says feminism is for everybody, she is echoing what has always been a basic assumption of black feminists. Or, as Combahee River Collective puts it, quote, We might use our position at the bottom to make a clear leap into revolutionary action. If black women were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free, since our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all systems of oppression. And that was a that was a challenge to black male leaders and also to the larger radical feminist movement, groups that in many ways were very radical, groups like Red Stockings or Witch, Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell, groups that in many ways held held sisterhood to be the basic natural unit for political identity and organization, much like many white socialists have viewed the proletariat. But the black feminist movement has become extremely consequential in recent years, as you write, quote, although the LGBTQI community has always played critical organizational and leadership roles in movements, they've often had to sacrifice their public identity or face harassment, marginalization, even violence. We've witnessed a significant shift over the past two decades as the leadership of black radical movements has become predominantly queer, trans, and non-binary. And this, of course, has been a, a major and much remarked upon development. What in the broad sweep of these histories you tell does this signify? And then second, does this new important vital figure of a more inclusive leadership, does it also point us toward if still inevitably struggling to fully reach this bigger matter of a leaderful movement that the sort of movement that Ella Baker championed in her discussions with SNCC and in her criticisms of of the SCLC? It is very significant. This is not the first time we've had uh, queer and trans leadership. It's just the first time it's really quite open and actually acknowledged as a f- key part of the political vision that people are fighting for. So the Movement for Black Lives, which is, uh, which of course is a coalition of, of like a hundred different organizations, has made uh, Black feminism, you know, LGBTQ uh, politics, disability justice, uh, as really critical to what's defined as Black freedom or Black liberation. That's something that's new. And this is what Barbara Smith always meant by identity politics. It's not identity politics to the Combahee River Collective was never about, you know, your individual identity is a thing that's going to define your interests, needs, and wants. It's really about the way um, structures of oppression intersect. So when we talk about class first, for example, you can't have class first unless you could define who the class is. And if the class is seen as female or femme, as queer, as trans, in addition to being both immigrant, native-born, indigenous, you know, racialized, uh, then suddenly 
the kind of analysis of of oppression and the kind of analysis of what liberation looks like is going to include all those connections, all those um, identities, not just your individual interests. So I think that's what Black feminism kind of brought. That's what the Combahee River Collective and other organizations really uh, brought to the table. Um, And they also brought an economic analysis. You know, think about organizations like the Third World Women's Alliance, the Harlem-based Black Women Enraged, the Black Women's Liberation Committee of SNCC, which became the Third World Women's Alliance. These were organizations that actually struggled with the question of queer sexuality, uh, of women's liberation, of Black liberation and its intersections. These were the core organizations that I think opened the door for re-educating so-called revolutionaries uh, to think more broadly about who the oppressed group is or who the class is. I think that despite the fact that we do have queer and trans Black leadership, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're kind of out of the woods, as it were, uh, because these are people who took a huge uh, leap of faith and courage because they're also facing uh, what we're witnessing now. The backlash against so-called critical race theory is not just that. It's a backlash against queer liberation and queer politics and trans liberation, trans politics. That's as important as not being able to talk about slavery, right? And so the backlash is there precisely because we have greater visibility. And the test for us is whether or not, again, we're going to choose a kind of identity politics that recognizes the way that people who are not us are oppressed and exploited. And I think that's also the power of Black feminism and the power of that that chapter. That is to say that what they were advocating was not simply saying, okay, what we want is for Black women, and if it benefits everyone else, great. They've always adopted the position that capitalism is not helping anyone. Patriarchy is not helping anyone. You know, racism is not helping anyone. And so we're imagining and fighting for a new world without patriarchy, without gendered violence, without state violence, without class oppression, without capitalist exploitation. And that is a world they're trying to build, not a separate, private, exclusive world in which Black women and Black women alone, whether they're trans or not, that Black women and Black women alone would benefit. You know, that's not the world that they're fighting for. I do think that this argument that that horizontalism or that Black Lives Matter was a leaderless movement. It was always leaders. The question is, who are those leaders accountable to? And what's the structure that allows uh, leadership to be shared and more expansive? Uh, and I think that, yes, what we've been able to witness in these new movements is a possibility of truly shared leadership. But there are some dangers. And, and, you know, one way to put it is that 
there's identity politics as a revolutionary phenomenon, and then there's uh, identity movements that sometimes impose a kind of litmus test on political participation. And so we're also dealing with situations where people in movements who may make mistakes, who may not be as educated on, you know, on naming, on using gender pronouns, on how to interact in a way that allows others, you know, the opportunity to speak freely. These kinds of things, these are these are organizing mistakes. These are things that people have to learn. And so if we're going to have a different kind of horizontalism based on shared leadership, uh, we've got to be able to build movements that make, make mistakes and that allow people who make mistakes to be able to learn, advance, participate. Uh, and that's what it means, I think, to be an abolitionist in organizing. Not just the abolitionist in terms of trying to end the structures of incarceration, but not be incarcerated ourselves. And one way to do that is to really meet people where they are, to do old-fashioned organizing where you don't assume everyone's at the same place or shares the same uh, strategies, values, or language, but you build movement in struggle. It goes back to the original theme of the book that, you know, one of the ways that we've been able to witness the emergence of Black women, queer, trans leadership is through struggle, through recognizing who has voice and imagination uh, and capacity and learning how to be with other people who are not like us. Um, and that's the work of organizing. It's, it's not easy, but it's transformative. Yep. I, I'm currently engaged in a lot of tenant organizing, targeting a, a couple hundred tenants who all share one slumlord. And just as someone doesn't, a worker, workers in a workplace, the thing that they have in common is that they were all hired by the same boss. The same kind of goes for a major slumlord like this. What brings these people together is that they all have the same slumlord, but they are black, white, Latino. Some are disabled, some are queer, some voted for Donald Trump. Um, and we are trying to organize all of them because <laughs> um, there they are, humanity. <laughs> right, right. And it's not easy. It's, it's, it's very hard. And one thing it does remind me of, though, um, so much of what we've been talking about in the first part of our conversation is Black freedom movement, Black organizations, Black autonomy, Black self-determination. Uh, but all the contemporary movements today um, have pretty much moved past any semblance of exclusionary politics, and they are bringing together people across the board in fighting along lines that are not necessarily tied to them. And this is and this is what we what I talk about when I write about solidarity: that solidarity is not a market exchange; it's not something that's a commodity that I'll give you mine if you give me yours in exchange for something else. But what we're seeing in these new movements is a principled solidarity without the expectation that you're going to get something in return. So you show up at Standing Rock, you show up at the border, you show up um, in front of the uh, LAPD police station, you show up wherever you need to show up 
for others because you know your liberation is tied not just to your needs, but to the needs, the wants, the wishes, desires, and ending the oppression of others who you may not have any necessary identification with. But you know, the old-fashioned slogan is an injury to one is an injury to all. Uh, And so you don't need to be empathetic. What you need to do is be in solidarity because empathy is a very dangerous thing. Empathy forces people to uh, try to identify with and feel the other. And usually you only feel the things you recognize, not the things you don't. You know, So solidarity means you don't need to understand what people feel, but you need to stand there for them because you know that oppression is oppression no matter what. To finish the interview, returning to where we started off, and this is a passage where you're talking about why you decided to write the book. You write, quote, I kept encountering student activists disillusioned with both the academy and the liberalism of the Clinton era who were seeking radical alternatives. Despite what seemed to me an abundance of radical organizations in our midst, they looked nostalgically to the 1960s, especially to the Black Panther Party, for what they believed were successful models of revolution. But I wondered... What does success mean for movements committed to fundamentally transforming society? Does it mean winning campaigns, taking state power, passing laws that are transformative? What does it mean to win, and why does it matter? The focus on winning was not limited to college students aspiring to become revolutionaries, but had been baked into movement culture with the expanded role of the nonprofit industrial complex. You continue, quote, Unfortunately, too often our standards for evaluating social movements pivot around whether or not they succeeded in realizing their visions, rather than on the merits or power of the visions themselves. By such a measure, virtually every radical movement failed because the basic power relations they sought to change remain pretty much intact. And yet it is precisely these alternative visions and dreams that inspire new generations to continue to struggle for change. And... I do not want you to mistake me for one of those socially challenged doctrinaire socialists selling newspapers at the entryway to whatever whatever event that you criticize in the book. But how does utopian imagining, freedom dreaming, how does it relate to that work of evaluating our successes and failures and developing plan, plans to win? Does, does this other way of thinking about politics rooted in, in the assertion of dignity in the face of this ceaseless fight and the anticipation of, of living out radically different ways of, of organizing our world, need it be counterposed to discussions of victory and defeat programs and strategy to, to put the questions in really concrete terms, in terms of my own, my own political work. The time that I'm spending as, as a, tenant organizing, a tenant organizer, I feel, I feel both a responsibility to really help them defeat their slumlord and materially improve their lives, but as part of that, necessarily to imagine something even greater, a vision beyond even what we might, well beyond what we might have a chance of winning in the short term. So how does how does that all work together or not? No, no, it all works together. And let me just say a couple of things. One, I'm not against any language of winning, but part of what I'm arguing against is a couple of things. One is the fact that so many organizations now in the 21st century depend on uh, this nonprofit industrial complex, which is to say, you know, sometimes 
the work involved requires base building. And there's a win there. You know, the ability to establish a location, a ground, a culture, a, a sense of community in which people stick together for the long term. And if you cannot prove within a short period of time that you are winning a campaign, then you lose your, your funding. It's that simple. So if funders put their money behind winnable campaigns, then some of the more long-term work doesn't get funded and it goes cuts to the side. If you're building a movement around housing, there are a couple things you could do. One thing, of course, is to make sure people are not evicted, like immediately. That's a win. But if all you're doing is running around and making sure people don't get evicted, then you don't really have the time or, or luxury to think about social housing and how to win that, uh, to think about whether or not there are some things other than legislative victories uh, or approaches that could deal with the question of housing. Or you end up in a place like LA where people would say, oh yes, we're fighting to house the homeless. And you end up supporting uh, municipal practices in which homeless people have places to live, but they can't leave. It's like a carceral situation. That's what we're dealing with today. We got people who are like in these uh, temporary housing situations, but they're policed. Uh, they have curfews. They have all this stuff. So it's like, you might as well go to prison. Let's just say that initially, that sounds like a good idea and you realize it's not. The flexibility of not being caught into trying to prove that you're winning and losing is to see this as a protracted struggle that even a win could reveal a contradiction. And if you think in those terms, then you're not thinking about it. You're thinking about what is the long-term struggle to really build uh, a movement and society that we need. And there's no possible way you can do it by having a checklist and check the things that are the victories and they accumulate. Because Part of the the critique of critical race theory, part of the the argument of critical race theory, rather, is that sometimes what you win can be a loss. You could win legislation and things that end up tightening the screws. And these are really important. The final aspect of that in terms of uh, kind of visionary politics is something that Du Bois said. Uh, and it's beautifully captured in um, Vaughn Raspberry's book, Race in the Totalitarian Century, when he talks about, when Du Bois says, you know, socialist states have a right to fail. That to fail is not the end. To fail is part of the process of creating the new world. You know, and so part of writing this book in the first place, not just now in the new edition, but from the from the get-go, was to get away from the bipolar sort of conception of social movements. Because what happens is, and this goes back to the question you asked earlier, we only want to write about the movements that we think won. That's it. Who cares about the ones that didn't? And part of my argument to my students was like, Look, there's all kinds of movements that did some things, laid some foundations, and built uh, visions of a new society that we need to pay attention to. We just don't know about them because what did it? What they were fighting for, they didn't win. And in that case, 
that goes for almost every socialist organization in the world. <laughs> you know, <laughs> who won? Seriously, because it's not about that. That's not the same thing as saying, therefore, we should not build campaigns that actually have a tangible outcome. Because honestly, if you don't build campaigns that have a tangible outcome, you won't hold people. That's just, that's obvious. That's the kind of thing I don't think I have to tell anybody. And yet, there's still this thing, which is held on by the left, that there's one path, and that path is to take state power. Remember having arguments with Amiri Baraka about this. I was on a panel with him many years ago. And he's like, there's only one path, build state power. And there are multiple ways, multiple ways to solve people's problems, multiple ways to build movements, multiple ways to establish a kind of long game, as it were. And in each one of those, you are bound to fail someplace. So don't turn failure into an end. You turn failure into the part of the dialectic of producing new forms of social knowledge, which is the whole point of being in a social movement in the first place. Well, Robin Kelly, thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Robin D.G. Kelly is a professor of history at UCLA and the author of numerous articles and books, including Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great Depression, which you can find my interview with Robin on in our vast archives, and Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, the book we were discussing today. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that labor and white skin cannot emancipate itself where the black skin is branded. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Frankos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really does that is you telling other people to check out the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 